Welcome, screensavers. I'm Michael Gallup. I'm Matt Sturdivant. I'm Tyler Sitkus. Together, we host the Silver Screensavers podcast, a show about the world of cinema and a celebration of our love of movies. Today, we are discussing the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is our third horror reboot in like six months. Am I right about that? Yes, sir. Yeah. Later on, we're going to have our Oscar season rewind. We're talking about Nightmare Alley, Best Picture nominee, which I have drastically changed my opinion on. First, of course, is our weekly watch list. And I think this week, fellas, we should start and give the listener a peek behind the curtain of the show. Uh, Our main review this week, we planned on doing Uncharted, but we, we all saw it. And while it has a couple of good sequences, it was so bland that we just like decided we couldn't do a full convert. I mean, we could have, but we didn't want to do a full episode on it. Um, but Matt, why don't you give us your brief thoughts on Uncharted? I want to know what two sequences you thought were good. I'll tell you in a second. Um, no, I mean, objectively, it, it was it was harmless. There wasn't anything offensively bad about it, to be honest. I just, it wasn't for me, and I know, I knew going into it, it probably wasn't going to be for me, but I get, wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt anyway. Um, but walking out of there, I mean, I can see, it's just so, it's not bad, but it's just so sanitized and, like you said, bland. It's like you got a nice piece of steak, but then you don't put any seasoning on it. It's like, good on paper, I guess, but it just did not hit for me. And I, I, like a two hour movie that felt like four hours and like, and I said this before, this is how I picture alien abduction to feel like I remember walking into the theater and then two hours went by and then I walked out of the theater, but I just don't remember anything about what happened on either side or in between either side. That's exactly how I picture alien abduction to feel like. Uh, abducted by aliens you don't even remember it i'm impressed you came with the metaphors today tyler what do you think of uncharted so i went into this movie and i try not to do this but i went into this movie fully expecting not to like it i'm a fan of the game series i played every one um and i just thought the casting of for the two leads was horrible from the trailers it looked bad but you know i was ex- at least expecting a movie i could be entertained by even if i didn't like it this movie was just straight up boring. It like I don't understand. You have a series that literally like one of the most cinematic game series. Like people are like it's a playable movie, and yet you can't turn it into a halfway interesting movie. Like nothing about this was fun. It was just bland. The there was no like Tom Holland. I'm 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 over Tom Holland right now. I like like you said, Mike. We can we can have a couple of years without him. Maybe he can come back later. And he can come back and we can see did what he Did I say that? Him. I don't even you remember saying that. You did a few saying... episodes ago. <laughs> oh, did I? <laughs> you said, yeah, you said you could, you could, quit, you could go a, while, a little while without uh, seeing Tom uh, And that's, well. that's how I feel, absolutely. I mean, he did not have charisma for this role. Like, he did not. He was not a good leading man. Mark Wahlberg was an awful casting choice. He just played Mark Wahlberg. Like, it doesn't matter what character that was. It was just Mark Wahlberg being Mark Wahlberg. And he didn't have any chemistry with Tom Holland, in my opinion. And just... Oh my god, now I'm getting off track. I'm ranting too much. Uh, oh, give me one second. You, sh- you guys should have heard him when we first walked out of the theater. The whole car ride back. Oh, I'm <laughs> yeah, sad I missed that. I, I, I was upset by this. <laughs> you know, it just, just the fact that it wasn't... You have all these like 
big set pieces. It really felt like a studio, like, just, just put this through an algorithm. They just took a, a popular IP, and they took one of the biggest names in movies right now, threw them in there. They took a, a you know, an action movie, uh, a common action movie star in Mark Wahlberg, threw him on top of it, and we're just like, yeah, you know what, whatever this is, put it out. Well, that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at, like, nothing about it, I mean unless you're not a fan of the components going into it, then beyond that, I mean, there's nothing, I didn't think the acting was that bad. I mean, it wasn't anything to write home about, but it was fine. It was passable. Everything about it I thought was passable, generally speaking, but for someone like people like us that are going to pick it apart and really peel back some of the layers. Yeah. There's not much to show there, but Joe Schmo doesn't really, I'd say the not, it's like a, a nice action movie for a non-cinephile, if that makes sense. Like, it's relatively harmless. It's like hospital food, you know. You really you really came with the metaphors <laughs> today. <laughs> I won't beat a dead horse. Uh, I also, like, kind of went into this being like, oh, this could be fun. And I, I just didn't even think it was fun. Um, Matt, I agree with you that it, it's harmless. This isn't, like, a terrible movie or anything. It's just so empty of entertainment the humor i haven't seen humor fall so flat for two hours straight for a long time i'll get here's my props i did like a couple of scenes the falling through the air stuff that was fun enough the pirate ships being hoisted and carried by the helicopters that was fun enough but for a game series about a world-traveling treasure hunter, you would expect more captivating locations, more good action, and they just weren't there. I also didn't find Holland to be successful. He had no charm, and this is coming from somebody who really wants to see him have a great and diverse career. Antonio Banderas is just wasted. It's a crime to waste him. And Sophia Ali, is she's okay. There was no... There was no chance for like any chemistry between her and Holland, which I think is one of the weak points. Not that you have to shoehorn in a relationship, but even some some sort of like camaraderie between them that just wasn't there at all. There's just no intrigue here. Um, I didn't like it. Well, I, I want to add that the uh, some of the effects were definitely scaled back in the actual final product than compared compared to um the trailers notably the airplane scene where he's falling out of the airplane that's in every trailer that's been out since it got announced basically yeah like is it just me or did that definitely look worse in the movie than it did in the trailer i don't know i saw the trailer so many times in theaters that i think i was just numb to it so i frankly have no idea but i'm happy you noticed that I remembered what I was gonna say, um, and that's that. As um, yeah. so, uh, one thing in like all the games, I think that as far as I can remember, every single game has a point where you're about three quarters through the game, and Drake is just like fallen so hard in the story. You know, like he's he's without people, like he's he's in dire straits, and like everything looks lost, and he has to push on from that, thinking you know, like fighting whether to give up, and they that would be a perfect thing for this for a movie and they didn't even include that like there were no stakes at all like everything was just oh oh, i got betrayed again darn 
it's just I, I just can't take Tom Holland because he doesn't do anything other than like he's this goofy kid. Like that's that's his shtick and like like he literally kicks a dude off an airplane. He's like, Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. It, uh, it gets I, grating. <laughs> you're right. I do want to point out that one of the biggest set pieces in this movie is a Papa John's. So that <laughs> That tells you most of what you need to know about the, and not even like fun. There was no pizza, pizza in the face or anything like that. These people are not even in the pizza category. <laughs> I had over thirty to forty pizzas, <laughs> or third. I had over forty pizzas in the last thirty days. So that's Uncharted. Uh, that was that was our mini review, which is all I all I can ring out of that. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. But Matt, have you been watching anything else cool this week? Honestly, I really haven't been watching a whole lot this week. I um, in, instead of really watching anything, I've been playing, I've been replaying Bioshock, especially since they announced the movie from Netflix based on the the uh, IP. So that's been fun, and I also finished off peacemaker which was also a lot of fun all right peacemaker and bioshock tyler i also finished off peacemaker but i don't want to go over it because i'd spoil a lot but mm-hmm. i also watched cop shop how was it how was it I, 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 I better than i was expecting you know okay. cop shop right. slapped i'm giving it my seal of approval uh it, cop shop is a movie directed by joe carnahan it's basically about a con artist that gets himself arrested to try to avoid a hitman who's been hired to kill him. And it stars Frank Grillo as the con man and Gerard Butler as the hitman. And, you know, we Mike, this is a movie we made fun of when it was in theaters, you know, for how it was. I don't think the trailers portrayed it well. It's like a very Guy Ritchie-esque thriller. And, like, you got these eccentric characters, a small kind of set pieces that everything happens in. I actually thought it was really well done. Um, you have Alexis Louder, who's someone I wasn't familiar with before this movie. I had seen her in, I think, a couple things. Um, she was in to The Tomorrow War. It's the only thing I could think of that I actually recognized her in, other than like background characters and things. But she really stole the show. I mean, she was phenomenal. She played a rookie cop kind of in the middle of um, basically the carnage set in place by the uh, two men uh, that end up at her small-town jail cell. Uh, jail. And it's just really good. A lot of twists and turns. Like I said, it's very Guy Ritchie-esque, but just a lot of fun. Very old-school thriller. What did you watch that on? Peacock. All right, Peacock. Good to know. Good to know. I watched a a couple of things, one old, one new. The new thing I watched was The King's Man. This is not to be confused with Kingsman, The Secret Service. This is the third film in the Kingsman series, directed by Matthew Vaughn, written by Vaughn and Carl Gajdusek, and based on the graphic novels by Mark Miller and Dave Gibbons. This is one of those movies where the good scenes are really good, but the rest is a big slog tonally. It's all over the place. Sometimes it's a serious World War I drama. Sometimes it's the outlandish action that has largely characterized the series. It could have been a good movie either way if it had just picked one of those routes, but it's not terrible. It's also, Tyler, like you mentioned, it's one of those where the trailer isn't totally what the movie is like the stuff in the trailer is in the movie but it's i thought it was going to be something a little different going in and i was curious because 
maybe it's just not my circle, but I don't know a ton of people who are like big fans of the Kingsman series. And I was like, how did they get the three of these things? You mean it's not your golden circle? It is not. <laughs> good one. Not my golden circle. The first one of these made $414 million. So I went, okay, all right, there's a reason right there. The second one, the golden circle, made 410. And I'm like, okay. And then the third one, I think, made 125 off of a 100 million budget. So I don't know if there will be another one. Well, um, that's but... it, it was releasing a lot of traffic, too, and delayed for COVID. It was, but it didn't do the business. Um, and maybe it will. It's now streaming. Watched it on HBO. And it's it's good. It's really not bad. Uh, I, just, I just never knew a lot of people who were big Kingsman fans, but they're out there. I'm going to spoil this movie, just the ending. Is it true that that Hitler is introduced in the post credit scene? Fast forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this. But, yes, he is. <laughs> I yes, saw a tweet is. about it and was hoping it was true. It's not, it's not even like... Oh, you know, here's a young man trying to rise to power. He just introduces himself, and you're like, okay. All right, little, then I guess. Well, MCU setup. <laughs> Another movie that felt like it was four hours. I also watched an old one. This is called Tourist Trapped. This is directed by David Schmoller. If anybody's a Puppet Master fan, uh, it's written by Schmoller and J. Larry Carroll. This is from 1979. And the first 45 minutes to an hour of it are really creepy, very effective horror. It has an awesome opening scene that you just, it's a one room thing and you never know where it's going and it's just freaky. Great production design on this one, uh, which can make or break a scary movie. However, for a 90 minute movie, the last half hour drags quite a bit. The suspense I was feeling really just turned into impatience, which is not what you want. I would still recommend it though. It's on Tubi if you're interested. I hadn't heard of it before I watched it and I will just plug Tubi for a second. Great, they have a really good selection on there. It's not all Oscar winners because it is a free service, but especially if you're a horror fan and you haven't seen maybe some of the old classics or some obscure ones, they're just there for free for you and you can watch a few ads and get the whole thing. It's pretty cool. Are you guys Tubi subscribers? No. No. No, two thumbs down for both of you. <laughs> Are you Sorry, guys ready to, to move on to another horror? Well, to the the direct sequel of a horror classic. <laughs> I can't wait. Let's go. This is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022 edition. Young entrepreneurs attempt to revitalize the town of Harlow, Texas, but when an accidental tragedy occurs, the killer Leatherface begins a new series of murders. This is directed by David Blue Garcia, written by Chris Thomas Devlin, from a story by Fede Alvarez and Rodo Sagayes. This is a direct sequel, guys. This is There have been many, many of these movies, but this one is a direct sequel to the 1974 original. Before we get to this one, I just want to... The 1974 original, if you haven't seen it and you're a horror fan, just... Go watch it right now. It's one of the most effective that I have ever seen. Once it revs up, it just does not stop. It is iconic. Uh, do you guys have any feelings about the original? 
I haven't seen it in years, so. <laughs> I, I've never seen it completely through, so I, I already know I was going into the new one with a disadvantage, but. Yeah, yes, because this, uh, well, we'll talk about it. General thoughts on this new one. Matt, what did you think? First of all, I just want to say I love the concept of doing a direct sequel to a classic horror movie. I've never seen anything like this before. It's amazing. Uh, yes. Not really. <laughs> sarcasm is... I can feel it on me. I, I, can see this, I can see this making a ton of money. No, but... Um, my general thoughts... Again, I kind of went in at a disadvantage having not fully seen the original in its entirety. I mean, I've seen enough clips and parts of it that I get the gist of what it was going for, and I realize that it's a classic. With that said, it wasn't that bad, is what I'll say. There was a, a lot of... It took... There was a lot going on in this movie. And it, um, like I said, it wasn't that bad. There was some stuff to like in it, for sure. And I, I, you know, I was able to pick out things that I liked. As a whole, it felt very messy, though. And I have a tough time really recommending it to just anyone because you have to be like a certain fan of a certain type of bad movie to really appreciate some of the things they did. And the way I put it in my uh, the way I put it in my letterbox write up is basically at a certain point I had to decide whether I was gonna keep trying to take it seriously or just bask in the absurdity. And once I started to bask in the absurdity, I actually was able to enjoy it much better for the remainder of the movie at that point. Overall, I'd still say give it a shot if you're interested and want to know what to y'all, see what all the uh, buzz is about. But overall, as a movie, I don't think there was enough good in it to really justify its existence as a whole. Right, Tyler, what do you think? So I'm going to start with my biggest praise of this film, and that's that it was under an hour and a half. Because if it was any longer, I don't think I could have finished it. I, I thought it was terrible. I, I hated this movie so much. It was, <laughs> uh, I, I think it had unlikable characters. The plot was terrible. The writing was awful. It's stuffed with so many bad horror tropes. Just pushed to the max that we've seen so many times. We have an entire series of slasher films and Scream dedicated to these tropes making fun of them and yet they just piled them on top and yet they felt the need to be like this is the true sequel you can ignore all the rest and then they're like but it's worse this is this is on par with some of the worst i've seen in this franchise honestly uh the, the legacy scenes from the first one are just awful so so badly used like the connection is this movie felt pointless because they clearly forced the legacy connection in there and the kills, they weren't even that great. There were a couple that I was like, okay. The rest, just the CGI gore felt horrible to me. Um, There's one scene where, like, you know, it's supposed to be... I don't know if it's supposed to be portrayed as scary or funny, but I was kind of like, this is just, like, a joke, the bus scene. I, I was like, am I supposed to be, like, shocked by this? Like, <laughs> just it, it felt at points the creators wanted me to, like, side with Leatherface. Like, ah, these damn Gen Zers. <laughs> Aren't they, aren't they, aren't they ridiculous? And like, that was just felt weird to me that like that, the forced school shooter storyline that was just kind of thrown in there for more shock value than anything 
Other, I thought that was just kind of weird, very unnecessary, and it's like everything in this movie was unnecessary, including its its entire existence. Yeah, I this is a pretty confused movie. I will grant you that. I probably liked this the most out of out of all of us. We're pretty spl- split in three ways tonight, which I always think is fun. I found this very entertaining. I liked the viewing experience, but it was pretty infuriating at times. I liked it more actually than most of the horror reboots that we've gotten in recent years. I do appreciate that it at least attempts to take the spirit of the first one where outside youth are heading into rural Texas and clashing with locals. I'm not saying it's successful, but it attempts it. I feel a lot of confusion and just bafflement with the very conception of this movie, and we will get into that in a minute. Uh, This one does, Tyler, like you mentioned, feels the need to shoehorn in like several social issues, which is fine. It didn't bother me, and that stuff should be dealt with in these kinds of films. But if you're going to deal with it, then engage with it. A lot of the stuff is just kind of there. Yeah, that that was my biggest problem. One of my biggest problems with it. It's like it it crams all these social issues in, but then it doesn't take a stance or like really do anything with them. Yeah. And at that point, right. it's like what's the what's the point? Yeah. This one is both much more gnarly and gory, but much less terrifying than the original. This one does not have and I don't even know what the word is. It doesn't have the atmosphere of like total freak out randomness that the first one has. And there were a couple of scenes that I just couldn't figure out why they were in the script. And I was made pretty, pretty angry by them. Um, I So if you're a fan of this kind of movie and of the franchise, I would recommend watching it, even if it's just food for thought. Um, but you could also just watch the original again, and that's probably going to be a more rewarding experience. Again, I don't want to bash this movie too much because I liked it, um, but it's it's certainly no 74 version. There, that is one other thing I wanted to say that I thought was interesting how it broke from the original is that, like Tyler was talking about, the kill some of the kills... The, a lot of the kills in this movie felt very performative, much like Michael Myers-esque. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the original... I mean, it had gnarly kills, but it wasn't as bombastic and performative as this one was. Am I right? Or Well, yeah, so in the original, both... what Toby Hooper, who made the original one, like, lessened the gore, like, by a lot... So that he could get, I believe, a PG rating, which mm. I, like, I don't know why he thought he could get that because it, it came back and the, the people were horrified. But he, he lessened it. And to me, it doesn't hurt the original movie at all. Um, and also, I think in the original movie, Leatherface, instead of this might sound insane, but like instead of being like just a cold hearted killer, seems kind of like stumbling around. Like, all his moves aren't so calculated. Some of it is on the fly because, you know, it's... This is different from other movies where uh, a killer seeks out victims, right? In the original, it's young people going to the Leatherface house 
and he just kind of has to like deal with them on the fly. They didn't ring the doorbell. He wasn't expecting them. Mm-hmm. But that that's over for that mini rant. Uh, short answer is yes, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the original didn't have as much gore, and it, it was not as performative as this one. So I'm sorry to answer in 50,000 words. No, but, I, well, I appreciate you for doing that because, like I said, I have I've not seen the full piece of work, so I could have been off base, and I'm glad that I wasn't. No, you weren't. Yeah, it's the performances here. We, we were just talking about it like two seconds before we started recording. I don't, I think all these performers, Sarah Yarkin, Elsie Fisher, Jacob Lattimore, I think they're all doing the most with what they've got. These are unfortunately just not the best characters. So I would like to see these performers in other stuff, in other scary movies or other kinds of movies. Um, I, I just don't want to rag on them too much because some of the things they are asked to do um, are hate-worthy, but I, I'm not going to hold that against them. What do you guys think? No, I, I mean, I, I agree completely. I, I think they were fine. I think they were just given absolutely nothing to work with. Like, right. they, they were doomed from the start. Like, you can't you can't make anything good out of what that was. Horrible, horrible, right? <laughs> I'll ask you guys this before we get into the plot. At any point, were you scared? No. No, right at the beginning, well, not quite at the beginning, after after he did the first kill and they were in that predicament and she's in, I guess minor spoiler, when she's in the van and he was like out of sight and you knew he was sneaking up to the van. Like that, that kind of had me... I'm on the edge of my seat a little bit. And then when he like they did that like weird that weird like supernatural f- frame in of like him p- popping up in the window, that's when I'm like, "Oh, that's what this is this movie's going to be." Yeah. Like without really talking plot details yet, the first couple kills, like the first couple kills that he gets off, um those are probably my favorite, and then it just gets progressively downhill from there. Yeah, I did get the kind of feeling that you got of, like, the suspense of, like, I know he's going to pop up at some point. I just don't know when. So it was a little effective there. I don't know about you guys, but... It didn't do I, that again, though, after that. That was the no, only time. Not, not really. It was just <laughs> kind of... It was very much balls to the wall after that. Um, I'm always looking for a scary movie that can, like, really scare me i'm not one of those i'm not somebody who's like you can't scare me like it's not a point of pride for me i'm just like not i just don't find every scary movie effective in that way so i'm always impressed when one is and i think that's one of the reasons of many why the original is so lasting because you know it was made in 74 it's almost 50 years ago and it's still like so effective to this day uh, even on repeat viewing, so so I, I'm the opposite of the person you just brought up. I'm easy to scare in a movie. Um, I'll, I'll be honest; you you can scare me pretty easily. So when I'm not at all scared during your horror movie, you, you failed. <laughs> you <laughs> couldn't get me at all. You, you really failed. And I just want to bring up a point real quick before we get into this that you brought up, Mike. Of the he's kind of wandering around like in the original. He almost to me he almost has like this kind of like childlike mental state. 
yeah. um, that he's stuck in. And in this one, they just made him like a superhuman like killing machine. Yeah, yeah. like <laughs> and it's just a bizarre choice for a direct sequel. Yeah. He's also got to be like eighty by now. Yeah. It's fifty yeah. years <laughs> after the original. This is like a, a senior citizen. Well, I. I cannot wait to get into the the actual conception of this movie. And I think you're right. In the original Leatherface, you know, he has the scene um, where after he he does one of his his jobs that he's just like doing that like shriek that he does. The only noise that he emits during it. And he's like fumbling around and then he just sits and is like huffing and puffing like he like doesn't know what to do. And he's stressed out. So you're absolutely right. you guys ready to talk about this movie? Oh, yeah. All right, so plot spoilers from now on. Spoiler warning. If you have not seen the following movie, please go watch that movie and come back or accept the consequences. We begin with a review of the first movie, uh, which is a staple of... You know, a few horror franchises, Friday the 13th always does this, and there will be a lot of connections to Friday the 13th from here on out in this movie. Uh, so knowing that this is like a TV news special that is playing in Texas, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that people know about these events in the world of the movie. Did it seem to be that way? Well, they, they had a whole gift shop set up to it. So, right. Yeah, I'm assuming so. Mm-hmm. So... Like it seems as though there was never any investigation into this. I don't well, know. She became a Texas Ranger, the, the original survivor, Sarah Hardesty, to capture him. It says, but he wore a mask, so no one knew who he but was. But he wore a mask, but somehow he was able to be housed in an orphanage, and no one ever caught that trail. Well, that's why I'm. That's that's the first th- point I want to make. That like. I'm almost thinking, what if this isn't the original Leatherface? Like, did they ever specifically... They never specifically said that it... Well, I mean, they try to imply that it's the original Leatherface, but they never actually back it up. Fair enough. And if they did lean into that a little bit, I think that would have been... Like, if they kind of more noted towards it. But, like, what we have right now is it's... If that's true. Oh, yeah, he's just another guy who cuts off people's faces and wears them. Well, there's one detail later in the movie that I think gives us some reason to believe, well, that it is the original Leatherface, but we will get there. Uh, we have these these young entrepreneurs. We have Melody and Dante, who are chefs, and they want to open a restaurant. Uh, Lila is Melody's sister, who was a school shooting survivor. Not a fan of them including that. Oh, and no. then just kind of just having it there. No, thank you. And so she can have some sort of trauma. Yeah, exactly. So she can freeze at certain points. Yeah. She's having... It well, also, it point. helps her stand up because apparently she was told that during the school shooting. Like, they get up. Like, yeah, I, later, it wasn't I, handled well. Also, I, since we're spoiling here, I'm going to bring a part later in the movie. Were they kind of like doing the whole, oh, she's using a gun now. She's over her trauma kind of thing. Was That's that what implied? I thought. That's and I thought that was kind of gross. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That was, no, no thank you on that. Uh, we have Ruth, who is Dante's girlfriend. <laughs> she didn't get anything other than that. When the cop asked him, he's like, That's my future wife. You, your I, fiance? 
I just want to say, I watched this with subtitles on, and every time she spoke, the subtitles just identified her as Dante's partner. Exactly. She, yeah. she got nothing, and they set her up to to be exactly what you expect her to be. Uh, but but we will get there. So they're traveling. They stop at a gas station. They have conflict with... They're mad that a guy in rural Texas is carrying a gun on them. <laughs> And then, and, and this is where the movie, like, this is where I, this is the first scene where I realized what this movie was going to be and how stupid it was going to be. When he brings up the hog meme and he's like, we got feral hogs around here, which is like a, a tweet from years ago, I think to Jason Isbell about why someone needs an AR-15 and someone's like, well, I got 30 to 50 feral hogs in my backyard. See, I didn't know about that. That's interesting. <laughs> so, I didn't either, but I guess I... There was the subtext of you gotta kill invasive species, and the the entrepreneurs are the invasive yeah. species. Uh. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, they're pulled over by the cops. There's a menacing warning not to mess with the town. Then they get into Harlow and realize that the the evil gun carrier in rural Texas, uh, Richter. Yeah, Richter is that hey something like Richter, that. Yeah. Richter, something like that is their contractor, which is not great. Which Dante seemed to know, but he didn't, like, say, hey, that's our contractor. The no, because they only spoke on the phone, so he oh, couldn't okay, have known. Okay. Also, you sure it wasn't Richie Kirsch? It wasn't Richie Kirsch. It's just a combination <laughs> of both names and director. Yeah. I don't... I'm curious as to the business plan of these people, because they're in what seems to be a just completely desolate area, and I understand rebuilding and... Uh, all that stuff, but they're like, we can open a, a comic book shop and a boutique and a nice haberdashery. And like, who's coming to this? Also, like, for, sorry, I just want to bring up a point here. First of all, he's like, everyone's heard about you. Which why? 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 Why is that like news? Hey, you hear some kids bought the town in the middle of nowhere? Because <laughs> according to later in the movie, when he's on the thing calling for help. He's like, I know you're the only law enforcement for, like, 50 miles. So there's three cops in this 50-mile radius. <laughs> so what is the plan here? Where is the people that are setting up shops going to live? <laughs> I don't know. That's... They look at, there is an orphanage on this strip. It's interesting place for an orphanage, but there is a Confederate flag flying in the window. They can't have that. They, are, they have investors coming. And so they go inside to see if they can take it down. They assume that it is empty. I don't know where the miscommunication here was. They assume it's empty, but it's not. This is an orphanage run by an elderly woman played by Alice Kriege, who runs it, as I said, where there is only one inhabitant. She says that she houses kids and troubled teens who need her to show them a different way, which I think we all know who she's alluding to. There is a dispute over the ownership of the building. Melody and Dante think that they have a deed from the bank. She says she settled it with the bank. And as they're arguing, we see Leatherface as a regular man at the top of the stairs. And this is where I really don't understand. How did Leatherface get here? Spoilers for the end of the original Texas Chainsaw, but... Uh, the brother there 
Leatherface's brother of sorts in the family is run over by the tractor trailer, so he's gone. But there's still Grandpa and the dad back at the house, and Leatherface is injured but fine at the end of the movie. So at what point did he just go, I think I just need a different life, and he went to live at an orphanage, and he explained to this woman that he used to cut people off and wear human skin as a mask, and she was like, okay, well, come on in. Well, that's why, that that just goes further to my point why I think it may not have been the original Leatherface, but more like a copycat. It could be. You know, weird coincidence to have a copycat, in, well, I guess it's not that weird of a coincidence, but have a, you know, a troubled youth grows up to be a Leatherface copycat, I mean, the timelines would line up much better if that was the case. The problem is the movie never explicitly addresses that. We're, That's we're a supposed fair to make point. that jump in logic ourselves. Yeah, I think that would make more sense than what actually happened. I would just question, why is the chainsaw in the wall of her bedroom then? True. Also, <laughs> She's like, uh, oh, we got to put this away. You can't use this while you're here. Let me put it in the wall. <laughs> Can I, I just... Can I just bring something back real quick? Just just to the whole plot point of we have to get up there and take that Confederate flag down or else the investors aren't going to buy. What? <laughs> what? It's a it's an abandoned Texas rural deep rural Texas town. You could take it down yourself. Like it doesn't you don't have to keep that there. <laughs> They're just going to show up you're like a Confederate flag. Oh, Let's man, get out of no. here. Yeah. Not to mention they spent yeah. like 20 minutes just trying to get that flag down. <laughs> yeah, just reach out and grab it. He's like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, it's so dumb. Yeah, it wasn't great. Uh, so they argue. Um, the old woman, Ginny, freaks out about her home. She's hyperventilating. She vomits and has to be taken away by the sheriff. His deputy, Leatherface, carries her out. And Ruth gets something to do, guys. They give her something. I don't know why she's like, oh, I, moral support, I gotta go with this woman. And I don't know why she's sitting in the front. Who goes moral support and then you sit in the front when there's a barrier between you and the person you're trying to support? I don't get it. Uh. So, no, no explanation. I was hoping I got nothing for that one. There would be yeah, clarity, no, no, other than to just set it up. I have no idea. So the movie can happen. Yeah, uh, the investors show up. It's a, a lot of young people, and they bring a party bus with them. That's going to be very important later. And then we we cut away. Sheriff is driving. And Ginny is in the back of the van. She warns Leatherface, because she knows that she's dying, she warns Leatherface to stay out of her room. And then Leatherface tries to revive her. It's unsuccessful. He kills the deputy in a very gruesome fashion, who accidentally shoots the driver, and then they crash. Matt, you said that this one was your favorite, right? Yeah, I mean... I. It had me thinking that this might actually be like a nice, not nice, but like this might actually be a satisfyingly gory create movie with a lot of creative kills. But that was like the most creative kill in the entire film. The first one, which um, 
I don't know. Are we going into detail? Or are we just gonna yeah, let people go into detail? He snaps this guy's forearm and then stabs him in the neck with it. I mean, I yeah. thought that was pretty badass. It was pretty gross. It was gross. But, yeah, but again, it was a creative. Yeah, <laughs> it was creative. It was it. It was original, you know. But we don't really get that vibe again for the rest of the film. Not really. I just want to bring up a point which we haven't gotten to yet, but you know, he cuts Ginny's face off and wears it for the rest of the movie. Uh, first of all, what's he, what's what did he put that on with? Why is that stuck to his face throughout everything that happens to him in this movie? And also, he looks goofy as hell with that on. You know, the original Leatherface looked terrifying. Every time he showed they showed his face, I was like, <laughs> like cracking up. He looks ridiculous with that face. <laughs> I wish they could have made it look better than, like, he's just wearing a rubber face. I mean, I'm willing to make the leap of belief that it's just going to stay on his face. It's, I'm fine with that. I, yeah, well, that, I agree. It's not as effective as, as the other one. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's a certain point. It, I didn't get to this point until a little bit later in the film. But, like, at a, at a certain point, if you want to find any sort of enjoyment with it, you just got to let go of some of this stuff and just bask in the absurdity and if you're not but capable why, of that then then it's not gonna work for you why are you doing that to this the texas chainsaw massacre series though why are you like ah you know this can be an absurdly like comic like the first one is so dramatically different in tone from this that i don't understand why they took this well okay. i'll raise you the the first sequel uh, which is like Fair. kind of comedic and like almost a parody of the film I, this this one is this franchise has gone through so many iterations, but I, I think you're correct. Is it this could have been tighter? They also just turn Leatherface into Jason Voorhees. Yeah, because Leatherface is upset, understandably, that Ginny has been killed, and that's like his motive or part of it to now take revenge on the people that are invading his mother's home, which to my mind. Uh, screams Jason Voorhees. They also make him unnecessarily supernatural, like Jason yes. Voorhees. Well, actually, I guess I can't right. say unnecessary in Jason Voorhees' case, but like uh, inexplicably supernatural. We'll, yeah. we'll say that. Yeah. There's no reason he survives what he survives in this movie, other than like you know, like they're like, oh yeah, that's just what slasher people are capable of. <laughs> they can live whatever. I love to talk about that at the end. Uh, Ruth, before before this happens, she sends the text to Mel and Dante. They learn about Ginny's death. Mel's like, ah, I, I don't feel right about this anymore. I gotta leave. Dante's like, oh, we met an old lady. Two minutes later, she dies. Who cares? Whatever, man. It's all good. He doesn't care. Uh, Leatherface, as Tyler said, wears Ginny's face as a mask. Now he kills the sheriff. And then we get the kind of suspenseful, like, Ruth is trying to get out of the car, and she can't. He grabs her. She is eviscerated. And there is the first kind of, like, main character kill. That scene reminded me so much of Scream 2. Oh, when they're trying to get out of the cruiser? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good reference. Uh, back in town, Richter, who is P.O.'d, takes the keys to the bus... <laughs> And he's like, you're going to have me back when I see the deed to to the orphanage. Uh, 
Does that make it better, though? Like, <laughs> like uh, I want to know that you kicked her out lawfully. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's dead regardless, but I want to know you did it by the letter of the law. <laughs> there, there was a shot, it, which I, I'm assuming was supposed to be suspenseful and, like, creepy, where, like, you just see a field of, like, wheat. And then Leatherface pops up, and I burst out laughing at this when his head just popped up from the thing. I don't know if that was supposed to be comical, but I died. Like I had to pause it. I was laughing so hard. The shot looks so stupid. Can you imagine if they had added the boing sound effect to it? Like, why was he ducking among a field, and then he's just like, whoop? He's a bird watcher. That's they explore a new side of Leatherface in this movie. The gas station attendant from the beginning contacts Sally Hardesty, who is the original survivor from the first movie, who is a good character. Uh, they say that it was she was the only one who survives, and that is true. It is true of like the main characters of this movie, but. I don't ever see anyone addressing, and maybe I just missed something, the guy who in the original drives the tractor trailer and then gets out and he just runs away and you never see him again for the rest of the movie. That guy must still be out there somewhere. Give me that guy's story. What did he do as he he abandoned his tractor trailer? He said, this is not safe enough for me. And he ran on foot in the open air away from, and he wasn't even aware of the situation. He just knew there was a guy chasing people with a chainsaw, and he ran away, never to be heard from again. I want to know what happened he, he to that guy. He got fired from his job for leaving the tractor yeah. trailer behind. But so there was a maniac, boss. Times. I don't care. It's a lot of money, that truck. truck. Yeah. But anyway, Sally Hardesty is the the only survivor of the original group. Um, Originally played by Marilyn Burns, who unfortunately passed a few years ago, so is now played by Owen Ferrari, who who does a good job, even though they turn her character ridiculous. Ridiculous. I just want to bring up a, this is going to sound mean, and I don't mean it to be, but when they first showed her, like, you know, like, cutting the pig and stuff, I thought that was Leatherface wearing Ruth's hair (laughs) from the back. Like, it's just a weird, I thought that was what we were supposed to be seeing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I felt bad about that, but I'm like, oh my god, that's a a different person (laughs) when they showed her face. That would have been that would have been an interesting twist. Um, so Lila, the sister, figures that if they were if Mel and Dante were right about having the rightful deed, then it wouldn't be in Sally's house. They wouldn't find the deed in her house, or she would have a wrongful deed. And so they go in the house. Melody is in her bedroom, and she finds the deed. So it turns out that they did wrongfully kick her out of her home which uh, this is one of those movies where like nobody is in the right at any time um not leatherface not the entrepreneurs made for a very interesting moral code of this movie was it interesting (laughs) yeah i just because you're you like can't fully be i mean you don't want these people to be killed but uh whatever i feel like the writers were just mad at young people (laughs) to be honest uh, Dante 
is approached by Leatherface, like the side of his face is sliced. He's on the ground, presumably dead. Leatherface goes up to Ginny's bedroom, has a private moment. He's like sniffing her dress and holding it tight. Again, very Jason moment. I didn't expect this of Leatherface, but that's okay. Mel is watching from the closet, and then Leatherface hears the, the party bussers, the bus partiers in town, and he gets very upset. But didn't he notice them while he was coming back to town from the cornfield? Well, that that was one thing I noticed. It was Not so much that he didn't notice them, but like, how did no one in the, how did he get back to the house without anybody noticing I'm willing to believe that he is a sneaky guy, but he didn't notice this crowd of people in the middle of town screaming when there's only silence around. I mean, whatever. I won't pick also, it apart. Also, this too town much. is literally a street of about yeah. three, four buildings in length. So, like, that's literally the bus is parked there. How do you this miss is that? True. It starts to rain. Dante, he walks out. Turns out he's not dead. He walks out into the rain. Richter actually has a heart of gold and he helps him and he warns everyone to get on the party bus as he takes out his gun and goes into the orphanage to investigate meanwhile leatherface is grabs a hammer and starts banging into Ginny's wall to retrieve what is, unless matt's theory is true to retrieve his own chainsaw i don't know why is it in the wall why is it like, oh, this boy's got to change his ways. He can't be murdering people with a chainsaw anymore. Let me just hide it in the wall, and then he'll never get to it. <laughs> also, would the gas still be good in that? Would that run? Well, if it's if it's not if it's not from 50 years ago because it's a different mother face, then yeah, maybe the well, gas. Well, actually, <laughs> I'm just gonna bring up some useless trivia that I saw in a tweet before this episode. Oh. <laughs> before we start recording, and that's apparently it's the exact same chainsaw from the first one. Same okay. model and everything, so that leads me to believe it's the same Leatherface. Oh, that's cool. Wow. Yeah. Unless they just happen to get the same old school model chainsaw, <laughs> but they don't make them like they used to, so that could just be. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she took him from it with the blood stains of nine thousand individuals, and she's like, "This is horrifying, but it's a pretty nice chainsaw. <laughs> Better not." Get rid of it. They had like a I, they had like an estate sale at the original house, <laughs> which I, I like. The grandpa and the dad are still alive, unless they're not for some reason. But I well, don't... it's fifty years later. I assume they. Okay, died. fair <laughs> enough. They'd be dead by now. Look, look at but... this grail I got at this tag sale. Yeah. But also like. Like, hey, this chainsaw, you know, there's not a plant within this town for miles. Why do you have this? You just walked here with this chainsaw? What are you doing? You came to this orphanage clutching a blood-soaked chainsaw? Come on. I, I, I don't know. It didn't make sense to me. But either way, Richter and Leatherface fight. Richter is killed, but he's able to get Melody the keys she does a nice uh, nimble hop onto the steps, but it's not enough. Leatherface catches her, does like a gnarly hammer throw. <laughs> she ends up below the house, um, you know, in, in the crawl space between the dirt and the first floor. 
and we have this chainsaw over the floor thing where she's underneath crawling away. He's sticking the chainsaw in the floor so that he can get her. I feel like this was the most prominent sequence in the trailer. Was this effective at all for you guys? Uh, it looked to me like if she just laid flat, the chainsaw didn't go deep enough. Like She could have just, just stayed there and he couldn't have gotten her. But like instead, she's like on her hands and knees crawling away. So I thought it was kind of stu- It looked like she could have just laid down and it would have went right over her, not hit her at all. I just want to reiterate my point that they don't make chainsaws like they used to because this, this thing was going through the floorboards like butter, man. Yeah. Those, those four by fours, it just literally zoomed right through. It didn't even stop. Like... Not to mention pipe. Pipe, too, pipe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Chain, chainsaws usually aren't very effective against solid metal, but you know that one just right through. I do feel like the first movie did that pretty well, where like it didn't just make the chainsaw cut through any single thing. This one, not as much. That thing you think is... these guys have ever seen a chainsaw in use? Like, doesn't you don't just go like slice with a sword through things? Guys, guys, listen. Chainsaws age like fine wine, okay? You let them sit for 50 years in a wall, and they get better. You didn't know that? No, I, I guess, I, um, guess I'm behind on my chainsaw facts. <sighs> get with it, man. No, I don't, it doesn't make any sense. And then we have, oh my gosh, we have the bus scene. So... Uh, I should mention that Melody escapes because Lila just like happens to be at, at the little the little grate that she needs to crawl through to save her sister. Leatherface gets on the party bus or they start to drive away. But of course, so this, these are young, rich people, I'm assuming, if they have money to invest. And they can't get a bus that can go for more than 10 feet without breaking down. Which I is thought unfortunate. he chainsawed the bus. Like that. Oh, There's okay. Like a little chainsaw sound effect there. Oh, but I didn't even notice that, and I watched this, this like twice. This guy has moved like in slow steps the whole, and somehow caught up to the bus and just just <laughs> sawed yeah. the bus to stop it. So the only reason I caught the chainsaw sound effect is because I watched I watched the scene happen. I watched it happen once. I'm like, why? The, what, wait, why did he stop? Did I miss yeah. something? And then I went back. And I'm like, oh. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, forgive <laughs> forgive my stupidity on that. I just can I just say though here, like when Richter first saw Dante, like with his face sliced in half, stumbling out, he didn't think to like give them the keys. He's like, oh, I'll yeah. keep them and, <laughs> until I investigate what's going on. Hey, he didn't have the deed. He didn't have the deed, man. He he, he made his his promise. They also, I feel like. I don't want to say it was a muted reaction because maybe they were in shock, but it seemed like a little bit of a muted reaction to a guy with half his face sliced open. <laughs> They're like, oh no, what could have happened? But Leatherface gets on the bus and everybody holds up their phones and then we get the best, everybody's live streaming like right away. Like they had live stream like opened up already. And I don't then know we- if you read... I don't know if you read any of the comments on these live streams. Oh my I did. God. They're was... like, oh, how much you pay that guy? Oh, this yeah. is fake AF. <laughs> oh my God. So stupid. Well, listen, listen. it was just before this, probably about the, the chainsaw floorboard scene. That's that's when I hit my point of like, you know what? At, at this point, why not? Why, why, 
just, just I, I just sat back. I'm just like, you know what? I'm just gonna, bat, like I said, bask in the absurdity of just like, just detach my logic, my logic, uh, sen- sensory nerve in my brain, and just have, well, if have you a hadn't, stupid good time. If you hadn't at this point, Mike, can I say the line? I was the best line in the movie. Please say it. So as he gets on the bus, he's this hulking man holding a chainsaw covered in blood from killing several people. He's wearing someone else's face. He's, he's revving a chainsaw that he just used to stop the bus. And a guy with a phone in his face goes, oh, you better not do anything, bro. You're going to be canceled. <laughs> I... <laughs> And this is where I realized, like, the people who made this movie just, they're like, just, they, they don't like young people and they have no idea what young people do. Like, they're like, oh, they just want to cancel people, even mm. when they're <laughs> towing a chainsaw. Yeah. I, you know what, I, I fully admit, I enjoyed that scene way more than, than I probably should. I, 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 I laughed. I, I like belly laughed at that scene. I thought that was just so stupid. It was hilarious. But I had a different reaction. I'm just like, what is going on? Like, there's carnage of this, and yet you just feel like this is the stupidest thing imaginable. Like, there's one scene I mentioned it earlier. A dude just appear, in several shots wanders with no arm. He must have had it cut off. He just wanders into several shots. Like he had no like directions from the well, where, from the where's he supposed to go? Makers. He's on a bus. He was yeah, looking he for the arm. Waddling in the he didn't know where the arm was. He was looking for it. <laughs> it's just like every all all tension that could have been in that scene was just wiped out. I have some questions about the canceling guy. Does he know who Leatherface is? Like, what does he think Leatherface is going to try? Like, and if he knows that, one, what would canceling Leatherface look like? <laughs> it's not, and yeah. two. How, why does he expect Leatherface to care? This, this is like in Halloween when that woman's like, this is for Dr. Loomis. I don't think Michael or Leatherface oh. care. Oh, and this movie it, takes some shots at that one, at that uh, franchise later on. See, I, I, I want you to bring that up later because I disagree that it's taking shots and I'm going to explain why. Um, it just feels like to me, like this person's like, ah, oh, young people only care about their phones. They don't actually like notice any real things. They so, just like, so, it, it's just ridiculous. So Ridley Scott directed this in, in disguise? <laughs> he could have. Yeah. I, we, thankfully you detached your logic by that point. Cause we have Melody and Lila in the bathroom. Was it a bad thing? It was a bathroom on the bus. They climbed through the roof. And this is where we get Sally Hardesty showing up, and they just, like, turn her character into a fool. They, they climb into her SUV, and she's like, you can't go anywhere until I get this guy. And I don't know why they weren't like, hey, can you just, like, drop us off at the 7-Eleven and then come back and get Leatherface? That would be great. I don't think we need to stay here. And then we get the worst scene in the movie, I was so annoyed by this. We have Hardesty going up to Leatherface's room. She is above him, and Leatherface is a big guy, but he's sitting on the bed, so she's above him with a gun pointed at his face. And listen, we've talked about this before. I think there is totally, totally room in horror movies for a level of illogic or unbelievability i'm fine with that but you have 
a gun to a guy's face that you've been waiting for 40, 50 years to get, and you need this maniac to validate that he knows that he killed your friends 50 years ago so that you can kill him. Also, yeah, for, yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything you just said. But, like, so the chainsaw sitting on the floor. I thought he was going to do some ridiculous, like, kick to, like, the chainsaw oh, that was yeah. going to, like, hit her. No, he literally stands up, slowly picks up the chainsaw, and just walks outside while she's just standing there. Well, yeah. Like, you've already, you're already like, oh, you don't remember me? He doesn't. So what are you waiting for? You think he's going to be like, oh, no, wait, I do remember you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's because they saved that chainsaw kick for later in the movie. Yeah, true. that's true she's but never he, heard him utter a word and now he's he's gonna make he's gonna have a soliloquy about his regrets in life it didn't make any sense he he picked up a chainsaw in front of you you have a shotgun to his face shoot like yeah, this is the no. stupidest scene well, it didn't I, I work at all i seriously think they tried to make her into a lord strode type character but completely fumbled it they did. I think they were intentionally trying to just put her in as like a, a copy yeah. of a Laurie Strode. Yeah. And like you said, you thought it was like you you thought it was supposed to be kind of like a tongue in cheek, like making fun of it, taking shots at it. I don't because I think if that was the case, she would have just been killed immediately. But like even after she's chainsaw, I'm getting ahead of myself. But she has a chainsaw through the stomach. She still has time to save the girls and deliver that whole oh here's the gun thing. So I feel like that wouldn't have happened if they were trying to make a joke out of it. Right. She would have just been, like, killed instantly. I think they yeah. just made her an awful character like everyone else in the movie. Especially since after, when she comes back in the street, she's like, you killed my friend 50 years ago, and I'm here to make sure that you don't do it again. You had the opportunity 30 seconds ago. You yeah. could have ended it, and you didn't. Also, she shoots him in the chest with a shotgun. So he's like, ah, and he starts to run away, and she misses again. What? Yeah. He's, like, he's 10 feet away from you. What are you doing? Why would you just shoot once? And then you're laughing in the street like, ah. Yeah, but you forget that she loaded the gun with Tic Tacs before, so it didn't hurt him that much. <laughs> just just uh, like a rubber bullet or something. Yeah, I in all the props in the world to... Marilyn Burns, the original Sally, for going. Th if you ever get a chance to like read up on the production of the original one, um, do so. It is it is very interesting, um, and good thing that things like that aren't allowed nowadays. But uh, and Owen Foray does the best again that she can with a character that I think that uh, they don't do anything good with. So there's a lot of fighting. You know, there's. The girls are driving the SUV and Hardesty's shooting the gun and they crash. Lila's fighting Leatherface in the street. And then he just runs into a building after being shot for the umpteenth time. But it's like a mosquito bite to him. Can I just bring up a point here? The car scene. They could have just driven away. But yeah. they're like, ah, we're going to... And he throws the chainsaw, which bounces off hilariously. Like, it's just like, boop. And they're like, ah, and they just drive into a building. Come on. Like, I get you need your horror characters to do stupid things to stay in this. But if you're going to introduce a car, do better than he throws a chainsaw out the windshield and they crash into a building. Well, that wasn't even the worst car thing in that point of the movie. There's something worse that comes later. 100%. Yeah. So uh, Lila follows him because Sally tells her that if she doesn't stop him now, he's going to haunt her forever. 
which okay <laughs> i i want to break in again i'm sorry i just nope, gotta break I, this. this is what? for you so so this man killed your friends 50, 50 years ago and no one's heard anything since he hasn't killed anyone since uh, anyone knows of or anything he's gonna haunt you till then what does that even mean if they got out of there like if, if they still have the trauma of what happened in front of them even if they kill him. But if they got away, it's not like he went and hunted Sally down. He didn't even remember her. So, like, that's such that's a, a dumb great point. scene. That's a great point, yeah. Maybe, maybe by haunting them forever, it means they'll be um, doomed to to um, go to open mic nights and tell their story. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I get. Oh, go ahead. I just I get like what they're doing with the legacy ones of like you know these horror franchises have gone off the rails. Let's kind of bring it back and ground it a bit. But like then it just kind of falls apart when you get like there were 50 years in between these and like you know this guy hasn't been seen in 50 years, but he's haunting me to this day. And we, if he if he don't leave, he's gonna haunt you. He's still like the stuff he did still happened. It's gonna happen. You're gonna remember that regardless. Yeah, I, I have no Other better that, explanation. What, what else is he doing? <laughs> That's haunting you. He's he's calling her late at night and just breathing into the phone. <laughs> we have Lila walking, following Leatherface into the into the building. There's just a pool of water in the middle of the floor and he tricks her and he's tackling and they're fighting and again she's freezing because of her trauma and then melody comes in and you know she jumps on top of leatherface i haven't seen that before she is on on his back eventually she gets the chainsaw oh i'm excuse me i'm forgetting the the Lila and Leatherface underneath the water for 10 seconds or whatever that was. What do you guys think happened under the water? Well, first of all, how did Melody recover from that horrific leg injury that she had? I guess she pulled out the pole. And she's just able to walk fine and jump onto this guy, who, like six and a half foot guy, his back. Your yeah, sister's in trouble, man. We skipped a part here, and that's when she's trapped in the car, and she's like, oh, Leatherface is going to kill me, but you can get away. <laughs> and then she comes back with the AR-15. That First of all... Oh, yeah. So I, I, I took this as them saying, which I mentioned earlier, that, like, oh, she's over her trauma of guns, and now guns are saving her. Like, and Which I thought was a really weird like storyline for a school shooting survivor. Like, it just yeah. felt gross. Yeah, and also like, th- goddamn, how many times can you force? Oh, the gun's empty into this movie. It happens yeah, thirty-five times in the last twenty minutes of this film. There's a scene when she gives him the shotgun. She loads one shell in it and hands it to her. You you have one round. You somehow get two out of that, and you're like, wait, why is it not shooting again? <laughs> you you got it a magical second round. You should be. <laughs> why didn't you shoot him in the face? Because she was waiting to uppercut him with the chainsaw so that he could fall into the pool. And and then that, that would be the end. And again, what? Leatherface jumps out of the water unexpectedly like, like somebody else that we know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody you see on Friday... But they they hug, they're hugging there, 
I don't like get away. Get this is the the message of the end of the movie. Get away. Stop pausing. Stop. And then they get into the car. They're like, oh, what a relief. Let's turn on the autopilot instead of driving. (laughs) Instead of driving. The autopilot in the non-Tesla Tesla. Tesla. Yeah. (laughs) Autopilot that literally just takes you five miles per hour. (laughs) Like, I would get in the car and I'd be slamming on the gas. So I'd be out of that town in seconds. They're like, let's put on this. And it just starts slowly rolling. And then Leatherface grabs Melody from the passenger side window and she's on the ground and he chainsaws off her head and holds it up to Lila and he's like, yeah. Was that, a, and, was that supposed to be a nod to the original? Was there like a shot like that in the original? No, I don't think so. That's not the ending of the original. No, but like, what, um... I, I know I've seen a shot very similar to that in film before. It may not have been from the series. I'm trying to think, but I don't think so. There's a lot of gnarly stuff in that one. I could be wrong, but I don't remember anything just like that. I I like how after he kills her and, like, you know, uh, Lila's like, no, it cuts to him and he does, like, a Fortnite dance in response <laughs> where he, like, spins around with a chainsaw. He's flossing. <laughs> That was so stupid. Why is he doing a victory dance? What is this? I guess it, it's kind of like the ending of the first one, but in the first one, it makes because in the first one at the end, Leatherface is just like throwing a tantrum because Sally got away. In this one, I guess they're like, we'll just kind of end it the same way, only it doesn't make as much sense. But this time he's like, big W. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> spinning around. So. It's not him. <laughs> and Mr. Six comes to join him. <laughs> that was the dumbest shot to end that. On. <laughs> yeah, I and can we? I gotta make a request of scary movies, especially like tentpole franchises of which i would like to see i'll get to that in a minute stop doing this stop just having the killer come back in the last two seconds just so you can have a sequel or just for shock factor because you know what it isn't shocking we knew this was going to happen and it didn't make sense with the movie at all and that's why stop so that's why I was like, so the ending like before where there, where she pops up with the chainsaw and like, you're just going to uppercut him with it. What? Just put it like through his chest or something. What are you doing? Just like, t-? and that's when I'm like, oh, he's not dead. He just, you know, kind of got hit in the, well, so he's been shot, I think four times with a shotgun at this point. He got stabbed mistaken. in the, in the gut. He got stabbed. He's been shot four times. He's now got a chainsaw through the face, up the chin, and he drowned because he sunk to the bottom. But yeah, he's fine. He he can still run after a car. I mean, yeah. if he didn't have a cleft chin before, he's gonna have one now. So he can take. So that. So that. So just so we're clear, that chainsaw went through all those floorboards, like Swiss cheese. Yeah. But it didn't take. It didn't like slice his face in half when he got uppercut by it. <laughs> The human skull is so strong; it's stronger than houses. <laughs> well, no, it was it was the face of Ginny that really broke, that really protected him. If that yeah, hadn't been there, 
and that's that's what I was mentioning earlier. She now, now he's been chainsawed up the face. He's the face is still there intact. He's been yeah, in the water that's... three times now. He's got a chainsaw in the face, and it's still just there. What did he did he glue this thing out like it's super glued? <laughs> Crazy. Still on his face. And, but also, this is like an say say Leatherface is like twenty in the original. Which even I, that's okay. that's a low estimate. All he's right, got to yep. be at least seventy in this movie. <laughs> he's, he's moving like he's he's like twenty. At I'm most. telling you, it's either a different Leatherface or he's supernatural. I'm leaning towards supernatural because they just like we need to make another one, so he needs to be inexplicably indestructible. But even then, again, that it's like you you, you lean to one side, and then half the logic doesn't make sense, and then you lean to the other side. The logic that made sense for the first side doesn't make sense. No. Like the chainsaw being the wall and like the age difference. No, really. And why doesn't. she would let him in. It's just yeah. So this disjointed. Is the point I didn't bring well, like they clearly mentioned the gun could kill him because every time it was pointed at his face it was just empty all of a sudden. But like the scene where he she knows where he's coming from, Sally. She's waiting with a shotgun in the middle of the street. He's in an alley. She knows exactly where. She's aiming at it the entire time, and he comes sprinting out, and she shoots the chainsaw multiple times. <laughs> Why are you aiming at the chainsaw <laughs> that he's holding down by his legs? <laughs> like, you see the bullets hit the blade. It, it, it was so stupid. You knew where he was coming from, and you still couldn't... Oh, I hate movies like this. Halloween Kills did the same at the end, where they had guns, and they're just like, nah, let's not use them, let's beat them up. <laughs> to your point about... Why didn't they just stick the chainsaw in his gut? Uh, it didn't work with Sally. She was up in the air with the one through his gut, and then she still has enough power to fire the shotgun. <laughs> She's like, it's fine. Yeah, I, I, still, I still was entertained by this movie, I have to say. Where does this guy, where does this rank for you guys amongst the more recent horror reboots i'm talking the screams the halloweens uh maybe 10 years ago we got nightmare on elm street and friday the 13th where does it rank for you guys this is probably the bottom are we considering just like the the first halloween reboot like well i'm not talking about like the rob zombie one but 2018 2018 and kills kills with that this is this is ranked right next to halloween kills for me i i hated them both um yeah well it depends. If if you're talking just Halloween Kills, like of recent ones, I'd put this between Halloween Kills and Scream, like in you know a little bit above Halloween Kills. If you incorporate Halloween 2018 in the mix, then yeah, that gets knocked down to about about the same point where you put it, Tyler. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I wish they would do this formula and like actually not have it just go down the drain in a sequel yeah. or even in the first movie like i i know i know it's possible it's got to be well cuz i know you guys disagree with me but scream did it um it's possible to make a good requel reboot franchise sequel whatever it's possible but i don't, I don't know why they're having such a hard time doing it I don't know either. And that leads me to I mean, my next it, question. It can't or... be that hard. <laughs> no. 
Well, I I mean, yeah, evidently it is difficult. I, I, making a I movie think, is difficult. I will say that. I think the first Halloween did it well. Yeah. In that, like, it genuinely was a decent movie that really kind of built on the original, whereas the other ones are just kind of like, oh, yeah, let's just redo it with, you know, we'll copy this formula, and it's not going to... And they haven't been as successful, clearly. Um, It's just not... Like, you can make one good movie, but then when you're making sequels and stuff again, you're following the same thing that plagued the other ones, so... Which is just Halloween so far, but... Well, I guess it's... Part of it is you're taking worlds that are already so ridiculous or were so shocking the first time that now if they've built up a fan base, I guess you you have to ask yourself the question of, as the filmmaker of what do you want to give the audience in the movie? Do you want to actually scare them or do you just kind of want like a fun rehash of things before? Because with every Halloween or Friday the 13th, or any of those franchises, I feel like there's diminishing scare returns. Even if you like the movie, you know what you're getting. And I think, to add to your point, I think that's because when you've made that many films, the killer is now the character. You're yeah. going for the killer. So uh, you're not getting the same scare factor because you know you you know everything about the killer. You're, you're kind of not rooting for him, but like you're, you know, you're expecting to see that character do crazy stuff. Like... So, yeah, the originals worked way better because, you know, you had characters you could latch on. But when you're going through a new set of characters every time with the same killer, you're now making the killer the focus. And you really don't care about the, you know, the people they're killing. Yeah. Are there any franchises that you guys, that haven't been done yet, that you guys would want to see rebooted? Hmm. Haven't been done yet? Yeah. Or maybe they haven't been done in a while. I gotta think about that for a second. I would like to see other Friday the Thirteenth at some point. If they don't do it, like I, we have enough to sustain us at this point. But if they if they mix that up, I think that could be interesting. Oh, what if they? What if? What about Leprechaun? <laughs> Maybe. I thought the Leprechaun movies were always so stupid that I don't think, I don't think that should be rebooted. Or, or uh, Gremlins, maybe. That's not really like a horror movie, but... No, I think it counts. All right, final thoughts on the new Texas Chainsaw, or are we exhausted? Huh. That, I'm there. Yeah, I'm glad we picked that over Uncharted. <laughs> I, 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 I'll give my final thoughts and say it's an hour and a half. Just don't waste your time. It's not, not worth it. See, I, I, I disagree. I say, I still say give it a shot make your own opinion on it and the fact that it's an hour and 20 minutes it's you're not really out that much if you watch it and you're and it's not for you you know it's a pretty mm. you know clean runtime for as much crazy stupid bombastic stuff happens in it okay we're going to take a brief break now after a word from our fantastic podcast friends then we'll be talking nightmare alley see you soon has this ever happened to you you're in bed Drifting off and suddenly think, Who would win in a tug-of-war match between Superboy and Merlin? Did Marvel ever try to make a long-haul trucker into a superhero? How would it work out if I named my dog after a D-list supervillain? The answers in order are Merlin. Yes. And Amazing. I'm Jessica. 
And I'm Mike. And we host the podcast Ten Cent Takes, a show that looks at weird, silly, and cool moments from comics and how they're woven into the larger fabric of history. Moments like the time Superman shield for Radio Shack. When Archie got tempted by the devil. Oh, and then there was that time that DC Comics gave a superhero AIDS in an effort to be topical. It's always weird around here, but we'd like to think it's also interesting. So come with us and commit random acts of pop culture archaeology, one issue at a time. If you'd like to learn more, head over to TenCentTakes.com. All right, we're back with our review of Nightmare Alley. This is about a carnival worker who becomes a skilled con man. He keeps employing more daring tactics as he sinks deeper and deeper into danger and misery. This is directed by Guillermo del Toro, one of my favorites, written by del Toro and Kim Morgan. Based on the novel by William Lindsay Gresham, which I've read, and it's a really great novel, very grimy, absolutely true to the atmosphere of the whole thing. Uh, also, there's, there was a 1947 film, which I have not seen, and this was nominated this year for four Oscars, Best Picture, Cinematography, Costume Design, and Production Design. Matt, what are your general thoughts on Nightmare Alley? So my general thoughts, uh, I'm going to try and keep it kind of brief because there's only so much to say without starting to get into spoilers because there's a lot of parts at play in this film. Overall, I think it's very well made, visually very impressive. It's pretty well written. Um, I, I had actually, so I watched it twice leading into this episode. Once I caught it when it was still in theaters, and I didn't dislike it when I saw it in theaters, but I also thought it was kind of underwhelming. But then having watched it again on streaming, I did like it slightly more. I thought the runtime was a bit of a chore, but I also don't know what I necessarily would have cut from it. I just know that around the same point both times I did start to doze off a little bit. All that said, though, there are, there's way more good than bad in this film, and I, I do highly recommend it. The acting is great, the cinematography is great, the direction, the plot was intriguing. I mean, it's a fantastic movie, definitely very good. Tyler. Uh, so I was just going to say, I think, Matt, you hit the nail on the head. I was going to start the same way by basically saying, like, I can't say too much without getting into spoiler territory. This is an odd movie in which, like, even just giving my general thoughts, I have to refer to certain points. So I'm just going to kind of keep it brief as well. Um, I also thought the performances were incredible. I was shocked that Bradley Cooper didn't get a nomination for this movie. Um, personally, I, unlike you guys, I liked this movie on my first watch. I only saw it once and I really liked it a lot. So, um, once we get into more on it, I'll expand on that. Yeah, I'll just agree with everything you guys said. Like Matt, the first time I watched it, thought it dragged a bit. Um, I liked it, but it couldn't fully appreciate it. This time when I watched it, I was like, wow, what an excellent movie. So much clearer this time how each scene contributed to everything else. Brad Cooper is amazing. I was surprised he wasn't nominated as well. He has all these subtle but monumental changes throughout the movie. Looks beautiful. It's a great character study about someone who is so good at what they do they can't stop themselves and someone who has been belatedly born into something that they can finally thrive at uh, maybe a little later in life i definitely recommend it it's on hbo max and hulu for now 
Yeah, so I started on HBO Max, but then the app glitched out on me, so I finished it on Hulu. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Interesting. That's funny. I thought the supporting cast was also excellent in this really star-studded uh, Rooney Mara, who I... The first time I saw it again, I was like, I feel like she wasn't given as much to do as she could have. But this time I saw all the sort of subtle little things that she did, little performative choices that were excellent. Yeah, I thought she was fantastic. Yeah, this is Ron Perlman. First of all, it's his second best picture nominee of the year after Tyler's favorite (laughs) Don't Look Up. And this is also his seventh collaboration, I believe, with Guillermo del Toro. And I also saw something... Uh, Matt, did you send this to us where he wants to do another Hellboy movie? Oh, yeah, I did see that at some point. I forget. Yeah, I, w- I would love that. Love the Hellboy movies. Not the new one, <laughs> the old one. Any performances that stood out to you guys? Um, I had a really, well, pretty much everything about this movie I had a deeper appreciation of the second time around, but definitely David Strathairn as Pete which I think it's kind of funny they didn't give him a last name. I think they gave most of the other carnies, like, full names. But I think Pete was just Pete. Maybe I'm mistaken about that. But he was a standout. Um, Brad Cooper I definitely had a deeper appreciation for the second time around. Rooney Mara. Like I said, pretty much everybody. Everybody that was involved pretty much brought their all. Willem Dafoe for the relatively short amount of time he was in it he brought his a game i mean he put in a lot of work as a supporting actor in last year oh he does it every year he's awesome i i was just gonna say i agree with everything you said but i just wanted to throw in one that surprised me was richard jenkins and he didn't have i mean he had kind of a big role but not huge but just with what he did with it i was shocked like I'll, i'll when we get into spoilers later i'll explain the scene that i was really impressed with but he really stood out to me among everything else. Well, it's it's funny because this is Del Toro's first movie after Best Picture winner Shape of Water. I feel like people don't talk about that that much. That, you know, that one Best Picture, Richard Jenkins was nominated for Best Supporting Actor that year uh, for being in that movie. So this is the, the next collaboration between them. What do you guys say we just get into the plot yeah. of this thing? Yeah. All right, so spoilers from here on out for Nightmare Alley, which you should definitely watch. Spoiler warning. If you have not seen the following movie, please go watch that movie and come back or accept the consequences. We begin with Stan, Stan Carlisle, Stanton Carlisle, dragging a body into a hole in the floor in the middle of a house and then he sets it on fire, which was a, a very riveting way to start the film. You don't know who this guy is, but you have maybe a glimpse into his character that you don't know who is in this, this makeshift body bag that he has made. And it seems that he's ready to start a new life after that, after walking away from the burning house. He arrives fresh-faced at the carnival, and I think this was my favorite part of the movie. The production design was unbelievable with this thing. It was filmed so beautifully. Uh, all, all the acts were cool. All the actors just like fell right into place. They just seemed at home in these roles. And even when you have disgusting scenes like the geek scene, 
in a scene that could have just been like a disgusting exploitative thing del toro and the person playing the geek did such a good job of so showing like the conflict on this guy's face right when he has the chicken and the neck is stretched out he's like like i don't want to do this and then he does it and we learn later why he does it but i, I was very impressed with that first See, that, that's one of the well one of many things that i didn't fully catch, pick up on when i saw it in theaters the fact well par- partly because you can without subtitles you can kind of hard hardly hear exactly what the geek is saying in the beginning so when I had subtitles on and he really emphasized, you no, know, the dialogue really emphasizes, you know, him saying like, "I'm not like this. I don't do this, or I don't, you know, I'm not nor this isn't me," or, you know, that was one of many little points that like gave me a deeper appreciation and um, knowing what happens at the end, watching it through again, puts a whole new perspective on a lot of the events. And I think um, I agree with you on the whole setup of the carnival scene it was very immersive and visceral at parts like it was yeah fantastic i just i just wanted to uh say something here real quick um i didn't know really anything about nightmare alley before this i didn't read the book i never saw the movie before but i think the fact that like the whole geek scene the fact that this was directed by del toro I thought this was going to be some supernatural thing that when it kind of brought it down, I was shocked. And like, I, that worked so effectively for me that like, if it was any, any other director, I would kind of not expected it, but I expected that to go somewhere like supernatural almost. So it was really like shocking and kind of heartbreaking when they revealed what like actually was he, what he actually was. Well, that's the thing, even without it being supernatural, it still kind of has that eerie, almost spooky no I'm, I'm like dreadful vibe i'm saying it makes it it makes it even hit even harder i'm i'm agreeing oh. like i think that it drives it home even more like i was no. expecting that because it was del toro and the fact that no it yeah no i i was agreeing too i'm just saying i was adding to your point oh, okay sorry yeah yeah i it was impressive that cooper doesn't speak and i timed it for about 11 and a half minutes oh i noticed that too the second in this time. movie yeah and the first time he does speak is in a great scene where the geek goes missing and Stan is working for the carnival at this point. And he goes and hunts the geek. He walks into this hall of horrors with this giant devil's head and all this hall of mirrors and all this kind of stuff. Like you said, Matt, the geek is like, I'm not like this. I'm not like this. And I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but this shows that Del Toro is the master of placing fantastical scares with real life scares pairing them next to each other right we have the hall of horrors which is kind of the most supernatural thing that we get in here with the reality of this man's slavery to the carnival and how sick and disgusting that really is all right next we have brad who meets xena played by tony collette uh he is paying i believe a dime for the tub and I got to tell you guys, I do yearn for the days when you just carried around exact change for everything. Or, that, that was always nice. Or when tubs costed a dime. Or when tubs costed a Maybe that's What, what are tubs costing nowadays? <laughs> well, it's not about the tubs. It's about the fact that everything was just not inflated like it is now. I got to imagine... 
that someone who's carrying around a bunch of dimes, among other things, you know, you got to be jingling as you're walking. So, you know, it's really Every scene, everyone should have just been like, you just hear coins jingling around. <laughs> I would have felt it was more realistic. <laughs> uh, living in that house are Xena and Pete, played by David Strathairn. He was also the highlight of the movie for me. He just had like this, this, old wisdom mixed with kind of like uh years exhaustion over the years kind of vibe they're a mentalist team although he is an alcoholic he starts teaching stan all the tricks but warns him you never do spook shows which are when you basically like a medium we would call it today Mm -hmm. you never get people to believe or rarely should you that like their dead relative is speaking to them or anything like that. Yeah, so basically don't lie about what you can do. Only stick with, like, the quantifiable stuff you can prove, like the stuff from the cards. Yeah, and I think you get a exactly. really great scene early on when Xena does unintentionally kind of pull that, and then she basically just apologizes to the lady afterwards, saying, like, that wasn't real. And that was kind of shocking. Like, you would think they wouldn't, like, to protect their craft, mm. you know, but... Yeah. And like you said, Matt, I noticed so many more small details when I watched this the second time. Because in the beginning, we have Stan lighting the match to set that house on fire. And then later, when Pete is talking about how he knows that Stan has father issues, that's when Stan lights a match right after the mention of the father, uh, which was a great foreshadow. Stan... I was so fascinated this time by the scene just at night when Stan gives the geek a drag on the cigarette. Why do you guys think he did that? Well, now, uh, well, I guess we're in spoilers here. I think it was, you know, I I see that as a form of foreshadowing in hindsight, obviously, but. But why in the moment? I feel like he probably just took pity on him, you know, especially after the whole ordeal that, that he witnessed while trying to catch him fair enough and he does try to give him a little more attention later when he and clem drag him in the rain to the medical center or wherever that was so yeah maybe that was kind of like the last remaining shred of stan's humanity which is soon to go out the window yeah i was gonna say similar i think that's kind of like he's still pretty close to him on the like where he is at this point in the movie um, so he's kind of interacting and this is the start of his like rise up and then obviously, you know, spoilers, I don't want to get into the ending yet, but you know, I think this was just kind of like him. He's at that level still, like kind of with him, like an entry carny mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we have Stan has a really cool scene where he has an idea for Molly's Molly played by Rooney Mara her electricity stunt and he goes through the showmanship of it which i really loved and then he wants her to partner with him for the mentalist act they're on the carousel and guys finally we have a scene where a couple agree to dance both the man and the woman (laughs) she goes i want to dance and he doesn't go oh no i can't dance males don't dance what are you saying he goes all right but this is from but this is from last year, so we've reverted from that standard already with Marry Me. 
Okay, that but he does eventually dance, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that that was a good scene, and then we get Clem talking about how you make somebody become a geek. Which this scene really stuck out mm-hmm. to me when I was reading the book because it's so like sinister and sadistic and malevolent and every other synonym that you can come up with. And Willem Dafoe just does an excellent job of slipping that sliminess in there. Absolutely. I'm going to say this over and over, but another one, another scene that really stuck out to me on second watch, because obviously knowing what happens, it has a whole, a whole other, uh, what would you call that a poignancy? Is that the right? Am I using that yeah. word correctly? It 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 just like carries a whole new meaning knowing the full context of the film. If you're not, Miriam Webster is going to <laughs> haunt you for well, fifty years. Well, you're you're years. the you're the teacher, Mike. So this is true. Yeah, but J Lo hasn't married me at a concert yet. So <laughs> we're, we'll get there. We're working on it. That's true. Uh, so we have the. This is one. So, as an adaptation, let me say this because I, I've, as I mentioned, I've read the book. It's a hobby of mine to read books that are going to turn into movies. And great book, and this is a really good movie. This is one of those books that there's just like too much book for everything to be in the movie, which is in most cases, but especially in this, there are a lot of different components. Um, and the scene where Pete is drunk underneath uh the stage and stan either maybe inadvertently or on purpose either subconsciously or just completely consciously gives him the bad kind of alcohol you have the wood alcohol which you should never drink and you have the sugar cane and he gives him the wood alcohol and pete dies very much a a separate piece moment for all my literary fans out there this was something that was more interesting in the book is uh set up better as a conflict in the book but i still thought it was pretty effective here do you guys think that was an intentional choice by stan i was gonna say didn't didn't he admit to giving it to him later in the film he knows he did but i don't know if it's completely clear if it was like yeah i'm gonna kill this guy Hmm. yeah I took it as intentional in the grand scheme of things, you know, at the time I yeah. didn't know, but like, you know, with what he becomes and like the choices he makes, he kind of seems like throughout the movie, he's this con man willing to sacrifice anything for an opportunity that's in front of him. Um, so I think he did personally do it intentionally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still know it's a, it's a great uh, scene up to many interpretations then we get the the cops they raid the carnival they're upset at this act that act they have to cover up the geek they're telling molly that she's indecently exposing herself because she's scantily clad for her electricity act and this is where stan tricks the cop gives him a reading talks about his mom and this i don't know about you guys but i've always found explanations of not the he's a magician but i always found the explanations of magic tricks so much more fascinating often than the trick not you know and it doesn't like ruin it for me that it's not magic in fact i'm more amazed that somebody could figure out how to trick people so effectively i like this scene a lot for that i also like i want to point out the fact that jim beaver played the sheriff and i didn't catch that the first time and i'm glad to see jim beaver in an oscar nominated picture (laughs) 
Good no, point. I definitely, I, I definitely agree with you, Mike. Um, that like it was definitely interesting to see like afterwards how he picked up all that information. It just really kind of showed how like intuitive he was and like his ability to like create this act that he would end up spiraling out of control. Yeah, I could have had twenty of those scenes, and it I would agree. have been cool. Um, mm-hmm. And we we get a little bit more, but so after that, Stan and Molly, Stan gets a little more confident off of this him and molly leave and that's kind of like the end of the first part of the movie we're done with the carnival which is bittersweet because they did move on to some cool stuff but the carnival was my favorite part i also want to mention um they do in in a little bit ways when clem's in in the diner scene with clem he does drop the the words nightmare alley yeah I'm glad you brought that up because that is one other aspect of the book. And I'm not trying to be like, oh, the book is better because I'm not saying that at all. And I don't like to be like that. But the concept of Nightmare Alley, I thought was not translated super well from the book to the movie. Of course, you would never know that if you didn't read the book. But, you know, the Nightmare Alley was kind of like Stan's lens and experience of life that i thought was very central to the original story and it didn't come through here but it didn't subtract at all which i think shows the skill of the adaptation by del toro and morgan here but then we move into the second half where stan and molly are now a successful mentalist act in the big city they're uh they're doing it for a wealthy clientele and I noticed, I didn't even notice it maybe the last time, but Stan puts on a different accent for when he's performing, which I thought I thought was a great choice. Stan also quickly turns on Molly. He's very romantic in the first part of the movie, but then the first show that they do in the second part, he doesn't even wait until they're off stage to berate her for messing up. Which I, you know, you have to be pretty arrogant to bash your partner spouse in front of everybody and expect nobody to catch it. At least you didn't call her an, an incompetent little baby idiot. <laughs> that would have well, been incredible if he did. <laughs> you wouldn't have had the rest of the movie because she would have <laughs> yeah, just true, left. But you've insulted me deeper than anyone can. I'm out of here. Yeah. No, but I think it really shows like how like everyone kind of to him is just like a means to an end. Yeah, like yeah. It, It's yeah. just everybody's just a vehicle to take him to his next opportunity. Like there's, there's no real attachment he has. If you guys will allow me to backtrack for a second, I forgot to mention in the first part, and I'm curious as to what you guys made of this, the baby Enoch, the pickled fetus, or it wasn't a fetus. It was a full grown baby in the jar that Clem had. I saw this and I'm sure there are many ways to read it as kind of like a stand-in for Stan because it does have that third eye in the middle of its forehead, you know, like Stan is kind of drunk on his own fake ability to read things. And I also thought it it showed, if you'll forgive my English litness for a minute, that it was like, I feel like Stan this whole time is always being reborn into things. He's always trying something new. He's always placing himself in an environment where everybody else is versed and knows what is going on. And he does not. And he has to learn a ton of things 
on the fly and just kind of do his best. And he's always, Tyler, like you said, alienated from other people. Um, but maybe that's pretentious hoopla. What did you guys make of Enoch, the baby in a jar? I mean, originally I kind of took that as like a throwaway gag almost. Not a gag, but like a throwaway sort of nod. Like I didn't read it. I didn't read nearly that much into it either time I, I watched it, but that's definitely an interesting take that you got. I mean, I had to just because I had no idea why it was there. It made, I mean, it makes total sense when you put it, lay it out like that. I just, I didn't personally catch it the first or second time. All right. So then we get the entrance of Kate Blanchett playing Dr. Lilith Ritter, who is excellent in this. She tries to trick Stan. She shuts Molly up. Uh, she is an unexpected mark, and she tries to trick him. He does not. He is successful. And she was really screening him for Judge Kimball, who recently lost his son in the war. Uh, World War II hangs over this entire thing. We have like that off-reference oh, yeah. earlier by Clem when he's like, Oh, you hear about this Hitler guy? Ridiculous. Well, he said, he said, didn't he say like the Chaplin-looking dude? Yes, the chap, the yeah, Charlie Chaplin looking yeah. guy. I, I I I had to rewind that because I I thought he said that said that that Chaplin looking guy, but I wanted to make sure that that's actually what he said. And it yeah. No, you're right. He does. <laughs> then we get the newspaper headline later when he's in the office. Yeah, that, that really. I thought that was an effective way of like placing us in the times without having to like make that the central issue. Um, but Stan meets with Lilith Ritter. Her office is wired. The can a beautiful scene where the camera's just roving through their conversation as they kind of negotiate their partnership. What do, you, what do you guys think? Should Stan have expected that something was amiss from the start? Should he have ever trusted Dr. Ritter? Uh, I think he should have, but he was so wrapped up in himself and like how he could use this to benefit him. And I think that was like his fatal flaw of his character was that he he really didn't see as deeply as he as he thought he did you know he just saw everything as how how i can benefit from this and i think that's where he really messed up here and like someone that was better at what he does than him was able to get over him one on over on him yeah i think that's a good point uh this all kind of happens it happened much more rapidly the second time for me. We have Molly distancing herself because she realized that Stan, like you said, Tyler, really has no interest in in her or showing her any affection. And then we have the psychoanalysis scene where part of the deal is that Dr. Ritter gets to psychoanalyze Stan. And this is where I think both Blanchett and Cooper really thrive. They dive into the issue of Stan not only not drinking, but making it a point of pride not to drink. This is the first time to me that I thought Stan was disarmed, right? He's so calm, cool, and collected in every part of the scene. He always wants to be in control. And this was the first time, you know, he's laying down. She is above him. She's this domineering figure. She's finally somebody who is as smart as he is, or at least as, maybe not smart, but at least as cunning as he is. And so this is the first time that he is disarmed. They talk about his father figures, his own father, Pete. We're going to get maybe another father figure later in Ezra Grindle. And there was this awesome moment where she goes, was your mother beautiful? 
and he's just like so delicately like a little boy he was like to me i'm i was like i was puzzling that for hours afterward i'm like what does that mean what's the story with the mom unfortunately we never get it but he's he took that moment and he made it into something so much bigger super impressed by that maybe it was just kind of some kind of allusion to his father possibly being abusive or unappreciative or something of his mother or something I, i'm that's just me mm. throwing something out there just out of that but yeah, it absolutely could be. I, I don't know, but I, maybe, maybe it's better that we don't get an answer. I was either way, super impressed by that. He gets uncomfortable and leaves. Uh, we have the hangman scene. And then a really good one we have him visiting Judge Kimball and his wife, played by Mary Steenburgen, who he does a reading with their. They've lost their son, Julian, who was a soldier. And the whole thing is very sweet. He promises that they will be together again, basically in heaven after they all die, which, and we'll talk about this later with the other scene, but I thought this was an interesting answer almost to a lot of times with mediums, you know, there was a lot of controversy around them and I'm not trying to take a stance either way, but some people say they're fake and that they're really harmful because they're liars. And some people say, even if they are liars, like, what's the harm if somebody has a moment where they believe that, you know, their dead relative is reaching out to them? Isn't that positive for everybody? And this movie kind of has an answer to that in which, no, it isn't positive. In fact, it can lead to incredibly destructive actions. But that, that is for later. Oh, on the hangman scene... Was there ever a point during this movie where you guys thought that Stan was going to make it out okay? In the end? I, I had kind of like a nervous feeling about his character by this point. You knew so, I, knew, I had a feeling something was going to happen. I just didn't know what it was going to be until the end. Yeah, I kind of thought like that, you know, the fact that he went specifically against like Pete's in, like instructions... When he taught him, like, don't make this a spoof show. He's gone so far deep. He keeps getting deeper and deeper. I figured it was going to all fall apart at some point, and that's where it was headed to. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Tyler, it's your time to shine, because next, Stan is introduced for, by Judge Kimple to Ezra Grindle, who is played by Richard Jenkins. So what impressed you so much about his character? I think just the fact that he made this... Well, he like, he, he carries himself so much as like this dangerous man and when when more starts to unravel about him like you see him as this this like like abusive like horrible human being but the part that i, I that really impressed me was much later during almost towards the end of the film so I'll, I'll wait for then but just like how like he just like this was a absolutely reprehensible character and he just portrayed it as just kind of this calm cool like you know, lurking villain that, like, he could make anything go wrong at any point. And, like, now you have um, Stan Carlisle walking this tightrope of, like, now he's really gotten himself so deep and, like, any mistake could really have grave consequences. Yeah, I'm pretty annoyed now that this movie didn't get a best adapted screenplay nod because there are so many, like, subtle choices of exposition and connectedness throughout that I noticed much more the second time, um, but it didn't. So 
We have this lie detector. Stan is around Ezra Grindle and his men. He's taking a lie detector. It isn't going well. It's showing that Stan is a liar. But then he cleverly pulls out some info that he got from Lilith Ritter because she is a psychoanalyst who worked with many of the men in town. And he like cleverly calls out Grindle about forcing his ex-lover to have an abortion, which ultimately led to her death. And it shows on the detector is true because it is a true thing. And it also like embarrasses Grindle enough into submission. So I, th I thought that was very cunning, a very well-written scene. One complaint that I have, this is maybe my biggest complaint of the movie, which you know shows shows my respect for it, is that in the office, in Ritter's office, she shows Stan a big scar that comes down the middle of her chest, and Stan's like, what happened? She goes, life. Life happened to me. And I can never stand that. Stop. <laughs> Stop. Unless you're going to tell the story, just... I. Come on, life. Life really did. Life causes a scar like that. Are you sure? Are you sure about that? Was the, was the implication that Ezra <laughs> abused her? Was like she was. In... It's a good that's, implication, that's I and you're. Okay. I think you're right, but I don't. I just can't. I can't take that line. That was <laughs> like we discussed in in Scream Three. What's your favorite scary movie? My life. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Stan and Ritter begin their affair. She drives Stan to drink, which is the beginning of his demise. And his big scheme, because what's going on is that the reason Grindle is hiring Stan is because he wants to connect with his old lover, Dory, who he lost when she was very young. And so Stan has this plan. Grindle's getting impatient. So Stan wants to put Molly in the place of Dory, have her be a living surrogate like Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost, except Dory's spirit isn't going to actually inhabit Molly. Molly's just going to be there as a body that Grindle can see. Before that, we get the Judge Kimball and his wife's murder-suicide scene. Steenburgen is awesome in this scene. She's so gives like no indication that she's about to pull out a gun and murder her husband and then take a moment to reflect on life and then kill herself so that they can all be together in heaven again that she knocked that out of the park also it was around this point both times that i that's when i started to check out and when the runtime really started to um affect me hmm it's not that these weren't impactful scenes, and I remember, I do remember watching them both times. I didn't fully fall asleep, but I, like I said, by this point, this happens probably close to two hours by that point, and there's still, you know, a whole several sequences left to go. You know, I just, like I said, it's hard for me to say what I think could have gotten cut, but again, this is it was about here that the my biggest gripe being the runtime of this film kind of started to affect me. All right, luckily we have some more great scenes left. We have the meeting between Grindle and Molly slash Dory. This takes place in a beautiful snowy garden where, Tyler, you want to take this over? I think this is the scene that you're referring to. Yeah, so, it, well, this, this scene just really highlights how willing Bradley Cooper's character Stan is 
to just put any, like even his loved ones in harm's way for his own benefit. So I think that was really well done. Like, you know, he knows how dangerous Ezra is. And yet he gets Molly into this scene where, like, you know, she already she gets assaulted in it because he realizes quick. But the scene specifically that really, like, impressed me was when he realizes it's not his lo- former lover, Ezra. And he turns to, and he goes, Stan, you, I can't say it on here, you know, keep it safe. But when he when he says that line, I was impressed. I was like, wow, that's, like, he packs so much emotion into this. A, a line he delivers almost calmly. But, like, you can feel the heartbreak behind it. And this is this horrible human being, that, but you almost almost, you almost sort of feel for him at this point. Because you realize, like, the character of Stan, so horrible, He's he's what he's doing right here is just so awful. And, like, how far he's gone yeah. to bring these, like, this, the spook show that they warned against, how deep he's brought it to where, like, now this man is, like, falling apart because of it. Yeah, and... Even a little bit before that, he Grindel almost like calmly reveals to Stan that he was an abuser of women for like years. And, you know, that's when Molly shows up. Stan kind of does like a half-hearted attempt to stop him. But Grindel rushes over. We get the scene. And like you said, Tyler, you know, Grindel's like, I'm going to destroy you to Stan. But he's like crying like mm-hmm. a little boy. So, like, the vulnerability is there for this man who is uh, a monster in some ways. And then Stan, well, Grindle slaps Molly. Stan snaps and beats Grindle to death, which um, Del Toro is also great at that. He's a very good with he's a very good withholder of violence so that when it happens in an extreme way like this, it is super effective because we get that and then we get Stan completely running over Grindel's henchmen and it's all very visceral and disgusting. That's that's when you that's when you got the reminder that it was a Del Toro picture because you know, he's very meticulous when it comes to you're right, violence and gore. He uses it in most cases relatively sparingly. Yeah, so Stan's on a rampage. He goes back. He has this final confrontation with Dr. Ritter. Um, they you know, reveal that they've been scamming each other pretty much the whole time. And he, Stan is shot by her in the ear. Doesn't It's not a fatal wound, but like half his ear comes off. And he would kill her if another man didn't step into the room and Stan ran away. So he is really on a rampage at this point. It's also shown next that Stan, you know, we see in the beginning Stan dragging this body into the floor and setting the house on fire. Then we learn that that was his own father who he kind of tortured by like freezing him and then setting him on fire. Uh, Was this a shock to you guys or did this pretty much seem like what was going to happen? Um... I wasn't. I, I wasn't quite sure. I, I wouldn't say I was significantly shocked or blown away. Like no way that could that that's so crazy. You know, it was like it was just another piece of the puzzle for me. It wasn't the most impactful scene for me. Yeah, I kind of thought that's where it was going anyway. Um, so, but let me ask this: um, How does that stack up to the um, 
the father scene from Antlers. <laughs> let's just not well, ever bring uh, it up again. I just like it's done. The Del Toro likes his daddy issues. I guess likes to explore yeah. father issues. If you don't know what we're talking about, Antlers is on HBO right now. Good movie. <laughs> the awful, awful dad scene. Uh, after that, we have Stan, who's homeless. He's an alcoholic. He is. He is really run down. So he goes, of all places, to the carnival, to his old stomping grounds where he first learned to thrive. And we have Tim Blake Nelson, who is running a carnival. And Tim Blake Nelson also has Enoch the baby in a jar. Says he got it from a folded circus. So that must mean that our old friends from the beginning of the movie uh, may be unemployed. Maybe their act didn't last. And then Stan gets the job as the geek. Tim Blake Nelson pulls the move on him where he tempts him with a steady job with some alcohol and Stan knowingly accepts. He said he was born from it and then he does the thing that I hate in movies but I think it was effective here where he laughs that turns into crying that turns into laughing that turns into crying which I normally hate but he does it it well here and then yeah yeah yeah, fade to black. I just I just want to bring up something real quick. Like we went over a little bit ago, but just the how incredible it was. Like when Kate Blanchett revealed, like she's like, "Oh, you know, I really do did love you," and that's when he's like, that breaks it for him, and he realizes she's like, "Did I lay it on too thick?" Um, you know, like just someone trying to show him affection. That's when he's like, "Oh yeah, mm. this can't be real," and then he discovers he's, he's been yeah, scammed. That's true. And like just that Kate Blanchett kind of weaponized people against her enemies like like he just you thought stan was in control this whole time and yet she was using him the entire time i thought that was a really well done twist there Hmm. and then the call back to the line where she's like am i do i am i powerless now after she shoots him when he because he's like you have no power when he finds the gun in the first place yeah thought that was cool I have a fun bit of trivia for you guys. You're going to have to like bear with me, though, because there's a few moving okay. parts to this. All right. So Guillermo del Toro said that Pan's Labyrinth, his earlier movie, was largely influenced by the Chronicles of Narnia, which is written by C.S. Lewis. Del Toro even turned down an offer, apparently, to direct The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is one of the big blockbuster movies of my childhood. Mm-hmm. William Lindsay Gresham, the man who wrote the novel Nightmare Alley, divorced his third wife, Joy Davidman, who later went on to marry C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. Wow. That is a, <laughs> yeah, that's a Kevin Bacon moment right there. Uh, you know what's funny about Kevin Bacon? I, I've said this before, the whole Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon thing. Marvel has basically ruined that game. Oh, God, that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As soon as you tie someone back to the MCU somehow, then that's two degrees. Or not two degrees. Glad we but... ended this Nightmare Alley discussion by bringing in the MCU. We have to. Disney's Disney's taking over. I, I was saying we're contractually obligated to mention any <laughs> some form of Disney property. No, we're not. We're not. <laughs> I, just, I just have another piece of trivia that I think I probably brought up before, but... The fun fact about this movie is that Leonardo DiCaprio was supposed to be the uh, star of this film. He was signed oh, on no. to, but he left to do licorice, licorice Pizza, I believe. No, he was supposed to do Licorice Pizza, 
but he couldn't do it because he was signed on to this movie. And he ended up having to leave this movie due to contract uh, issues. So uh, ah, Bradley Cooper got both roles for that. <laughs> Took both of his roles in Licorice Pizza and this. Well, I think DiCaprio was supposed to be Enoch the baby in a jar, <laughs> so I don't know if they took the exact role. How would this movie have gone with Leonardo DiCaprio? Would it have been as good? Hmm, that's a very good question. It, I guess it kind of would have been a little similar to Shutter Island. Maybe not quite the same, but kind of similar. I mean, I never doubt Leo. They they try to get him out of the geek cage. He goes, I'm not leaving. I'm not effing leaving. <laughs> He's got a microphone. <laughs> I'm not effing leaving. <laughs> you know, what I, what I thought was interesting about this movie was the trailers really tried to sell it as like a standard Del Toro, like supernatural. Like they had the Izzy Manor Beast like speech by Willem Dafoe laid over the ending where uh, Bradley Cooper was running through the halls bleeding and it made it seem like he was like this, that it was like yeah. a beast man running through. So it was just an odd way to make the trailers for yeah. this. Well, I mean, again, this was, I think they know what Del Toro viewers expect. And also his best picture last movie had a fish man as the star. <laughs> so I guess maybe that's part of it. I don't know. O- o- overall, and... Uh, emphasis on i love bradley cooper in this movie so i'm glad it was him so we have four nominations for this film best picture which i was surprised that was the surprise best picture nom for me cinematography costume design and production design what do you guys think this is most likely to win i'm i'm trying to remember what the other nominees for these categories were i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say best picture i don't think it's great but i don't don't think think it's gonna touch that um, I would say maybe costume design and cinematography. I would say more production. I'm gonna yeah, say production. Does yeah, think so I agree. Yep. Jinx, because <laughs> yeah, because I think just the entire like the the carnival setup and stuff was incredible. Costume I don't see because it was mostly just generic '40s stuff for the most part, outside of like the well, okay. original carnival okay. stuff. Yeah, true. And West Side Story's up for costume design too, right? Uh, let me check real quick. I know Cruella is. Either of you see Cruella? I've seen one scene, and that's where the, the Dalmatians kill her mom. <laughs> Spoilers for Cruella. I love Craig Gillespie, so I wouldn't sneeze at that movie. I haven't seen it, though. Oh, guys, you know what's winning costumes design? What? Cyrano! <laughs> No, I probably not. But here are the nominees for costume design: Cruella, Cyrano, Dune, Nightmare Alley, and West Side Story. Yeah, so yes, you're right. That, it's that not that touching costume design. I take it back. I don't. It's got to be. It's so. gonna I'm sorry. Be, if Dune wins, I'm gonna flip out. I was gonna say it's because I, I, I'm calling it now. It's gonna be Dune or West Side Story. If it's Dune, it's literally the most generic like sci-fi stuff. Ah, they're wearing dark dark black clothes. <laughs> you can't see anything made. <laughs> I like how they have what's his name, uh, Josh Brolin in like a T-shirt. That was, that was cool. It's a cool costume there. I, I say Dune more just because of how people foam at the mouth over it for some reason. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it'll win just due to popularity yeah. and people be like, "Oh yeah, Dune's so cool." But, but the I don't know the ones in West Side Story were were pretty fantastic. Yes, that's true. 
Well, we'll we'll have our final predictions in a few weeks here. You guys have any final thoughts on Nightmare Alley? It's a good movie, a solid, you know, very very well made movie. I I recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I see where your complaint is about the runtime, and it is a two and a half hour long movie. So I feel like that's long for most movies. But I mean, I was gripped the entire time, so I enjoyed it. Um, yeah. If you got if you got the time to yeah absolutely watch it yeah exactly I mean that's that's the probably the worst thing I can say about it which and and that's not to say that it the any part of it is bad and that's why it feels grating how at that length it's just it's a commitment you know and not every movie needs to be a you know clear my afternoon schedule so I can watch this movie you know don't look up. <laughs> Well, that's what you had Texas Chainsaw for, so great pairing yeah. tonight. Yeah, ironically, we talked way more about Texas Chainsaw. We took way longer with that than we did with this one. <laughs> so, then again, I'm also counting the Uncharted discussion as part of that, so. Ugh, don't see that. All right, well, if you, the listener, have any thoughts, please write to us at silverscreensaverspod at gmail.com. If you like the show, you can really help us out by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ScreensaversPod, and our Facebook is Silver Screensavers Podcast. Matt, where can you be found online? You can find me at Maddie X Sturds, S-T-U-R-D-Z. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Tyler. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tyler Sutkus. And you all, you all thought I was lying. Everyone that listened thought I was lying. They're like, he's not going to come back with this letterbox this week. We've heard this like three weeks in a row. I do have it. It's Tyler96 for Letterboxd. So there you go. <laughs> I'm a man of my word. The world was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can get me on Instagram and Twitter at Michael underscore Gallet and on Letterboxd at MGallet. Well, thank you so much for listening. People who listen to the very end, we love having you. Take care. We'll see you next time. Stay safe, everybody. Take care. Peace. See ya. Silver Screen Savers podcast was co-created, written, hosted, and produced by Michael Gallet, Tyler Sukis, and Matt Sturdivant. With additional editing by Matt Sturdivant. Intro music by Charles Michelle via Pixabay. Logo design by Nathan Seidel.